This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Welcome to this week's edition of the Better Rivals Podcast. My name is Oscar Aparicio, and this week, it is finally over. The season is done. We get to now look back at our preseason predictions and find out exactly where we were right, where we were wrong, uh, and where we were just flat out dumb. Uh, And with me this week, here to extol the virtues of Cedar Fever, it's David Newman. Oh my God, fuck allergies. (laughs) <laughs> like so hard. Sorry, I'm, I, maybe we should have waited more than thirty seconds into the episode to drop the first f bomb. But look, this is where we're at with with allergies right now. Cedar fever. Walked outside. So like, I have never had issues with cedar allergies until literally this last week. Um, usually every day, I try to take my daughter out for a walk. There's a bunch of cedar trees in our area. Like yesterday, we make it five minutes into the walk, and all of a sudden, I'm like. My nose is running constantly. My eyes are itching. My head is just like fucking everything's going terribly. I hate it so much. It's the worst. Yeah, it's pretty bad. I, so Austin, Texas, which is where both David and I are, is notorious for allergies. And cedar is, is chief among them, especially January, February time of year. Th- this is an especially bad one because the, the, it's like 70 degrees outside, which is great. I was out on my deck earlier today. I took a work call. I was like, oh, this is great. It's so wonderful. The dog went out, found out my dad, my, my dog has a luxating kneecap, which means her kneecap just comes out of place and she like can't walk until she pops it back in like rigs from Lethal Weapon and his shoulder just like smash it up against the wall or something. Uh, but, but I'm like, okay, the dog's going to go out a little bit. I'm out for five minutes. I am immediately like puffy eyed, swollen, just things leaking from my like <laughs> glands on my face. I'm like, yep. I, I don't know why I did this. I do not know why I went outside. This is a bad idea. Um, it's, it's terrible. It really That's is awful. terrible. I hate it. Uh, so yeah, so if we sound a little congested and or stuffy, uh, that is likely why, uh, because you, you're only legally allowed to take so much Flonase in a day, and I'm worried <laughs> I'm going to burn out my nasal cavity. So let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about, we've got two things really for this episode. We're going to talk a little bit about the Seahawks game because it, we really ended with the most elegant of tanks. It, it was a perfect coda to the season. Uh, is coda the right word? Maybe coda. I don't know. It's been a long time since I was in band. Uh, and then we're going to talk about uh, the, the season preview that we made at the very beginning of the year. We're going to go back to that time of year where we felt so optimistic about the, the team. Uh, what, what did we predict? Were we right? Were we wrong? Uh, and how did it all end up uh, and so let's first start with the uh the most elegant of tanks Niners had a 10 point lead in the fourth quarter and honestly I feel like a 10 point lead in the fourth quarter is basically our version of the Atlanta Falcons 28 to 3 like can we not have 10 point leads in the fourth quarter please um <laughs> it's just it, it's just you're gonna lose it and that's what the Niners did luckily it does propel them to the 12th to the, the 12th pick in the draft they've never had the 12th pick before in the NFL draft. This is a per Matt Barrows. Uh, so this will be a first, a very, very first for the Niners picking 12th. I mean, that sucks because it should have been much better than 12th if they wouldn't have won games that they shouldn't have won early on. Um, or not early on, but even a couple weeks ago. But anyway, um, yeah, I mean, look, I, I mentioned uh, before and then I wasn't even sure that I was going to watch this game. I am kind of glad that I that I mostly didn't. I, I watched the Red Zone channel, didn't have to go through, uh, you know, another game where the bullshit caught some of the defense, you know, doing some uh, doing some work after the fact. But uh, yeah, that's about it. I'm, I'm, I'm not feeling like I missed a whole lot of anything. 
Yeah, I, uh, as I said, I'm a glutton for punishment. Watched every second. I was there thinking, hey, you know what? It'll be nice to end this out, this season out on a high note. And uh, <laughs> and then the fourth quarter happened. Um, really, there were two questions I had when I was watching this game because the first game, DK Metcalf completely romped all over the 49ers. This game, not so much. And so my first question was, how did the 49ers stop DK Metcalf? And David, you had a very, very interesting answer after watching the the 49 because you do the all coverage for PFF. So you do like yep. you actually do watch the game. And not, she's not yep. just making this shit. Speci- up. I do specifically watch the uh it, it, at the at minimum, I watch the 49ers defensive pass plays, uh, which is is what I got in this one. And yeah, I think I mean the answer really is th- that they didn't. Um, it, at least from a coverage perspective, right? So um it, it, as far as his ability to get open. That was happening consistently. Um, it was happening against uh, both Akella Witherspoon and Jason Verrett. Um, I think the 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 main thing that was was happening was either one of two things. Really, it was either Wilson just wasn't finding him for whatever reason. He was you know turning his attention uh, you know elsewhere and and going to a different part of his progression, and so he just wasn't ending up uh, you know getting eyes on DK and, and able to take advantage of some of that stuff. And then the other thing that I think was was probably a, a bigger reason than than that even was uh, they they did a good job of pressuring him and, and getting there were there were several plays where DK's open Wilson wants to throw the ball and then he gets pressure in his face and and he has to either um, you know pull it down and look to scramble uh, and and try to find something to happen later this happened you know an example of that happened like very early on. Uh, in the first quarter where, you know, Fred Warner is getting pressure in his face. He has uh, DK open over the middle against Jason Verrett. He has to pull it down, ends up, you know, having to, to make a much more difficult throw after Verrett has a chance to, to kind of catch up and make up ground a little bit and be in much tighter coverage uh, and ends up an incomplete, you know, pass that, that's an overthrow. And so there were a lot of things like that where uh, you had plays that he was open and pressure, you know, ended up causing him to to either not throw it his way at all or end up throwing the ball away completely. Um, and so I think that was kind of the big reason you, he didn't put up any stats. Russell Wilson is generally one of the more pressured quarterbacks in football. And, and this is even independent of his offensive line. This is just the kind of style that Russell Wilson likes to play. This season, and this is actually if you include the, the Week 17 game, that Russell Wilson's been pressured on 38% of his snaps. Against the Niners specifically, it was a little higher than that. It was 45%. And a large part of that was Fred Warner. Fred Warner in this game had six pressures on the quarterback. And it was in large part due to a new wrinkle that you saw Robert Sala deploy with Fred Warner. And it's something that he maybe saw or maybe borrowed from Miami because basically what he did was he let Fred Warner blitz in instances where he was going to be a free coverage player. And it was a great little wrinkle. It's not something that I remember the Niners doing often or as often as they did against Seattle at all this season. So it was something that Seattle probably hadn't seen a lot of on tape. And it was really, really effective because presuming that you don't blitz, often when you're playing cover one or man coverage, you're going to get a free player and that free player can stay in coverage or they can effectively blitz. Fred Warner did that, got pressure a lot, and forced Russell Wilson to miss some open receivers. Yeah, I I mean, again, I've spent time this season going through every single one of the 49ers' pass defense plays, Um, and and not to say that I remember every single one of those plays vividly, but I I do not remember them using this specific wrinkle uh, at at any other point in the season. And and basically, I, I think actually going against Seattle, too, was... Um, one of the few teams that they could probably go with this type of approach with. So they, they will, you know, uh, I guess when, when you talk about cover one, right, specifically kind of back up just a second. Normally, if you're just going to rush four guys, you're in a standard pass rush, you're going to end up with two free players. So all of the, the eligible receivers get manned up by somebody. Then you have your one deep free safety. And then you usually have one free kind of underneath player. Um, and this is because there, there are five eligible receivers, right? So yep. if you're rushing four, you're left with other people in coverage. And just numbers wise, you end up with, you know, a free safety and one other free person if everyone else is manned up. So what the 49ers would do sometimes, though, and, in, in, you know, not this isn't a 49ers specific thing, but you can also take that free underneath player and you just make him a fifth pass rusher. So that's kind of your other, um, you know, flavor of cover one that you see is just a very basic version. Um, but. With Seattle, you get, you know, kind of like the 49ers, you get more condensed formations, more formations with 
heavier personnel groupings. And so you get multiple tight ends on the field, you get multiple backs on the field. And when you get into some of those more kind of like traditional sets, what ends up happening, right? So as is, is a defense, you get extra guys that are kind of in the box. And rather than, you know, if you're going against Arizona and you're in a four wide set, you're going to have to designate pre-snap. You know, each one of those man coverage defenders has to go find their guy. They're going to get lined up over them, and, and that's going to be basically their guy, um, you know, right from the snap. Um, when you get everybody kind of in tight to the box, you have to some some more complicated things to deal with from that standpoint where it doesn't always make sense to designate those things pre-snap because, you know, for instance, if you have a back lined up directly behind the quarterback, we don't know which way he's going to release, right? So if he if it's a pass play and he releases to the right, you don't want to have the linebacker on the opposite side of the field that was pre-designated to follow him in coverage. So a lot of times what defenses do in these situations is they just kind of wait for the distribution to happen and they pick up the guy that comes to them, right? So if the back comes out my side, all right, I'm going to pick him up. And so you, that shuffle kind of happens right in those moments after the snap. And then whoever is the guy that's left that doesn't have anyone is your free player, right? Well, what they were doing, the 49ers specifically in this game that was kind of the new wrinkle, is rather than having that free player then drop out into coverage and, and be that extra coverage defender underneath, if that player was Fred Warner he was rushing the passer and he was going after Russell Wilson and it was overall very, very effective. Yeah. It's what forced Russell Wilson into a couple of incompletions. I mean, you already mentioned one where you, you have an open DK Metcalf and Russell Wilson just doesn't get the ball to him. It was because Fred Warner was in his face and he forced a bad throw. There was another instance where something very similar happened where you just were moving Wilson off of his spot and forcing him to make throws before he was ready, even though there were wide receivers that were open this is, I mean, it was a great little wrinkle that Robert Sala put in specifically for this game, and it was effective. It was really, really effective. It utilized Fred Warner as a chess piece. It was, you know, something I don't know that the, that the Seahawks are ready for, and it helped keep the offense under wraps long enough for an offense, if the Niners had one, to score enough points to make this a really, really tough game for the, the Seattle Seahawks. But can't hold them down for too long. You know, the, the better team won, unfortunately. And, uh, and here we are with the 12th pick in the draft. There you go. If only it were single digit, but you know. Yeah, I know. It's you know what? It's it's this this was it was the most elegant of tanks. It was. It, this is exactly <laughs> you know if you want draft pick position, it's what you want. Um, it's not like the Niners are gonna go ahead and put in <laughs> Josh Rosen for a couple plays just to make sure they get that draft pick a, a lot of the Philadelphia Eagles. <laughs> yeah, I really needed Bethard. Like you know, uh, I mean, look, we needed losses what before this game, um, obviously, and it still ended up in a loss. But yeah, I mean, really could have used you know some Josh Rosen action and there's Bethard just like, oh man, my shoulder really hurts. I don't think I can throw that kind of stuff. It's really yeah, good just in there. immediately just be like, oh man, I got a, I got an issue. It's like Sam Ellinger in the bowl game. He has like some injury and then all of a sudden you see days of him working out like the next day. It's like, oh, did you really have a shoulder injury? What's going on here? What's yeah, man, my, here? Uh, my issue was that I'm trying to get ready for the NFL draft. That's what my issue yeah. is. <laughs> Yeah, that's that would be an interesting ploy. But all right, that that's enough about the, this season. Let's let's talk about big picture. What what the hell happened this season? What do we get right? What do we get wrong in our preview? And and one of the first episodes that we did, and I had a lot of fun doing it, was the hype episode. And, and so let's let's quickly just talk about the things that we got right and the things that we got wrong when we told you what hype to believe and what hype not to believe when it came out of training camp reports, because there was a lot of hype coming out about a lot of different people. And for some people, we said it was warranted. For others, we said it was not. Right off at the top, we told you the Brandon Ayuk hype was real. Count on it. Believe it. He was tailor-made for this offense. He is everything that we were hoping from a wide receiver. And sure enough, he absolutely was. Uh, if you look at PFF grading, he was the second best rookie wide receiver in this class behind Justin Jefferson. And Justin Jefferson had like a, pretty much a historic season when it came to PFF grading. Uh, and Brandon Ayuk came in second. If you look at the the yardage totals, just raw yardage or receptions, he is top of the charts for the 49ers in terms of rookies. Uh, Debo Samuel would be the only player uh, that has some that has some records over him, but uh, you look at depth of target and the, well, you've got Brandon Ayuk doing wide receiver things, whereas Debo was getting a lot of those <laughs> targets behind the line of scrimmage. Brandon Ayuk, we said believe the hype uh, and uh, yeah, definitely met expectations. Yeah, man, take uh, we'll take a victory lap on this one for sure. Feeling good about Ayuk um, and and his future and what he can do in this offense, especially if they, you know, get something figured out at quarterback. But yeah, I think he's just shown that not only can he do 
some of those Debo Samuel type things, right? You can use them in a lot of that way. Those ways, like you can get him involved in the screen game. Um, you can get him some of those little jet pop passes and let him work after the catch. And um, he is, you know, I think he's obviously not as physical. I mean, I don't know that like anyone is almost uh, as physical as Debo Samuel in terms of what they do after the catch. But you do see him, um, you know, able to make things happen. And that was an element of his game that we really liked in college is, you know, the, the explosiveness and what he could do once he had the ball in his hands. Um, you know, and there, there were a few, some of our favorite plays from college were him taking, you know, these like little glance routes and just getting a step on a DB and, and house in it. Right. Like he had a couple of those plays that were very, very close to that, where he just barely got tripped up by the corner before he could really get it going in open space. Or if he had a quarterback that could put the ball on the money where it needed yeah. to be and not like a yard in front of him where yep. he needed to like flatten out and dive and catch the football, uh, it would have been, it would have been a lot more yardage for him. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So we didn't get, you know, as, as many of those big plays, but man, like, you know, seeing him fucking leap over that dude, uh, and, and get into the end zone, yeah. uh, and some of those fun plays that we had Yeah. He, he was definitely, uh, one of the most fun pieces of that offense and excited to watch him going forward. Now, Javon Kinlaw, we, we told everyone, I think, in the hype episode to kind of pump the brakes on Javon Kinlaw and not expect him to do a lot. And that's mostly because over the last five years, rookie interior linemen didn't do a whole hell of a lot. Those with more than 200 pass snaps didn't really break a, a pass rushing productivity score of about 5.5. Like best players in the NFL around 8 to 10. Rookie interior linemen hang out around 5.5. Um, Kinlaw still only managed like a 3.3 in terms of pass rush productivity grade. Um, and, and that was... Uh, and that was, I think, like top three or four out of maybe like eight or nine of defensive uh, linemen that qualified. The The best defensive lineman, interior defensive lineman in the class was Derek Brown, who was drafted uh, ahead of Kinlaw. But his pass rush productivity was just 4.1, not even up in that kind of, you know, four or five area that you would expect for a really good pass rushing defensive lineman. Um, I think d- people ask, oh, compared to DeForest Buckner, how was that? Well, Buckner was better, flat out <laughs> better. And in every, basically any way that you look at Buckner's performance as a rookie, um, for, and remember, he played 1,008 snaps as a rookie year, 1,008 snaps. Um, and in every measure, whether it was PFF pass rush grade, run grade, pass rush productivity, number of sacks, number of pressures, um, Buckner was better. So even though we said pump the brakes on Kinlaw, were we wrong because Kinlaw just had even kind of like a more underwhelming season than that? Yeah, I I think this is one where we still like, so we were, I think, you know, kind of cautiously optimistic. You know, I think we, we definitely liked, um, you know, what he did at the college level and the production that he was able to put together there. And, um, some of the athletic traits, you know, were, were certainly appealing with him, but, uh, the, the thing that we came away from watching his college stuff being hesitant on was like the lack of technique, right. And how much he really did just rely on winning with power and athleticism at the college level and, and wondering, you know, how long it would take him before he could get some of those more technical elements in place that he was really going to need to succeed consistently at the NFL level. And we just, we didn't see it at all. And I think the bad part too, was that he didn't, I mean, he had, he had some plays here and there for sure, but overall like didn't look like that kind of athletic freak that he looked like on an sec field right like it 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 just it looked a little bit different there that was uh, i think a bit more worrisome and yeah i think when you look how that fits you know um overall in in the grand scheme of the entire league at that interior defensive position um you know he was down there and i think it, it is tough like I obviously there are more um, considerations here when you're talking about the trade for Buckner and, and it's not just a, like a one to one comparison. But sure, I, I imagine it's tough seeing, you know, DeForest Buckner being the third highest graded interior defender behind, you know, Aaron Donald and Chris Jones um, this season and then having to scroll basically to the bottom of the page to get to Javon Kinlaw, like um, not not an ideal uh, season for him, I think, even when you consider some of the things that we were pumping the brakes on. Yeah, I think overall, I still I still am optimistic about him in general, um, just because of his athletic traits and and some of the good plays that he put on film were, were positively good. I mean, granted, a few of them were against Jarrah Sweezy, and that guy can't physically <laughs> bend over. But the, <laughs> if you ever watch Jarrah Sweezy play, just watch his stance, because he always looks so weird compared to everyone else because he can't physically bend over. 
you cannot do it. So you cannot get into a three point stance or even like a halfway hunch two point stance. But it's so fucking hilarious. Yeah, it's it's pretty funny. But uh, I still think that both because we're talking about priors, his pedigree, his athleticism, all of that point towards someone who can put it together when he's got better players around him or another year of seizing. One player that we told you to super pump the brakes on because of their draft pedigree was Colton McKivitz. And he played like how you'd expect a fifth rounder to play, uh, which is uneven and generally not great. Um, the, the good thing, if you're looking for some good stuff on McKivitz, is that he didn't seem to have terrible issues with play strength, which is one of the things that, were, that we were worried about based on his college tape. But the prior was right with McKivitz. He's a fifth rounder. You can hope he develops into something else, but wasn't a lot of, you know, wasn't nothing to write home about this season. I think one of the players that we probably got the most wrong in terms of the hype episode was Trent Taylor. We were all in on yeah. Trent Taylor. We talked about <laughs> his third down performance. We talked about how him, you know, his um, his rapport with Jimmy Garoppolo in that, uh, you know, five or seven game sample um, in 2017. I, I mean, we were like all in. We had like hard hats and lunch pails emblazoned on our chests. And, and that, I don't know that Trent Taylor is going to play another snap for the 49ers. Look, I mean, yeah, so with with saying up front that you're you're absolutely right, we were dead wrong on Trent Taylor, and and that is certainly an L that we're gonna take. Um we did mention in our like in our defense here, we did mention that he would probably only end up with like 30 catches or something. Like it, it was a low from a production standpoint, we didn't have high hopes for him, right? It, it was gonna be more what we were banking on was that the the targets that he did get were going to be high leverage targets, right? That he was going to get a lot of third down targets, a lot of first down conversions on those third down targets, we hoped. And so, yeah, it was it was like a situation where it was like, okay, yeah, he's going to maybe only get like 30, 35 receptions here in this offense. But we're hoping that that a large percentage of those are going to be like pretty big impact receptions. And And it turns out just like literally none of it happened. 30 receptions on this team in this year would have been like a godsend. It would yeah, have been it sure. would have been amazing. <laughs> I mean, obviously we didn't as we'll get to uh in in a little bit here. Um things didn't exactly go as expected on any front offensively. Yeah, I, I don't know that there's anyone else that we were terribly like that we that we got the hype really, really wrong. I think Jason Verrett, we probably were a little under hyping Verrett only because we we had the huge caveat of if healthy and we just weren't sure if he was going to be able to stay healthy. But luckily he stayed healthy and it was really like there there was one player on this team that actually fulfilled revenge tour or revenge season 2020. And that was Jason Verrett. Everyone else, the revenge thing fell away pretty quickly. Yeah, I, I mean, like, so I would say we were we were definitely wrong on McKinnon. Um, and I don't remember us saying. Oh, yeah, I forgot. McKinnon. Um, no, I, I, I think we did actually say that we thought he would end up being being the best back potentially. So, yeah, that was everything yeah. about McKinnon was very wrong with Verrett. The like. I hesitate. So obviously he he played well and had a, a good season overall. Considering his priors, I wouldn't go back and change. Like that's not one where I'm I'm looking at how the season went and I'm like picking that one out as like, oh, I, I should have learned something about here that like I missed, right? There was something that I missed before the season. Like if if I could go back and do it again right now, that hype is I would still have the same sort of attitude about Verrett because the reality is like the guy didn't play in in however many like three plus seasons right like it's just so difficult to know in those situations what you're going to get if you're going to get a healthy player like any of that type of stuff so like that's one that you're just oh it's always going to be such a big unknown that I'm not saying that that was like right or wrong yeah, I think we were, I think Dante Pettis and Solomon Thomas, Solomon Thomas is kind of an incomplete, but at this point we have no more information than we did previously. Um, I'll be curious to see what the team does in terms of bringing him back or if they do. Um, considering how much they're going to need to save on cost, I feel like that could be something that they do. But man, bringing back another, you know, all ACL team is, is going to be something. Um, and Dante Pettis is now catching touchdowns for the New York football giants. So I think I saw at one point I saw he had like one catch for 33 yards and a touchdown. Uh, and it's like cool. Yeah, I, I saw his one catch was it was pretty pretty solid actually. But yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, overall, I think the 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 way in which we approach the hype episode, if you remember, basically we said take a look at the prior and see if there's anything that you're learning that's going to kind of affect how you're taking that into the future. Uh, and by and large, I think that was useful. Um, if we wouldn't drank our own Kool Aid on Jack McKinnon and Jamichael Hasty, I think we probably would have ended with. Uh, hey, speak for yourself on Jamichael Hasty. <laughs> all right, I had nothing to do with that shit. <laughs> Whatever he got, he was injured. He still gets an incomplete. I nope, love the guy. He does. I love not. it. 
They're still here. Still here. Undrafted free agents every year. Just churn them. Churn them and burn them. Let's do it. I need a new, I need a new fixation for next year. Um, let, let's get to kind of what we thought about what would happen with the team big picture and, and whether or not the the kind of questions that we asked at the beginning of the season were answered in a way that that was, you know, how we thought they would fall out and do a little bit of self-scouting, right? Like, were we looking at the team in the right way and through the right lenses? Uh, because the team certainly did not end where we thought they would. I think we said that they were a playoff team, like their floor was a playoff team and their ceiling was everywhere else. And, um, I, you know, I, they're clearly not. And so we were wrong. Uh, let's see where we went wrong. But before we do that, a word from Blue Wire Hustle. It's a brand new program where you can host your very own podcast here at Blue Wire. Hustle was created to give everyone the opportunity to take your podcast to the next level. Or if you want to host a podcast and just don't know where to start, Hustle is the perfect place for you. As a part of the program, you'll receive personal cover art, Q&As with Blue Wire's top podcasters, access to our community Discord, and an e-learning course full of tips and tricks. On top of that, we'll help you get your show pushed out to Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, and all other listening platforms. But the best part is you can get all this for only $15 a month, the same rate as any other hosting site would charge you for just the initial setup. So whether you're starting from scratch or have an existing show that you want to grow, Hustle is an open door to leveling up your sports experience. Acceptance into the program is limited, so get your application in today. To apply, go to bluewirehustlebwhustle.com forward slash join. Check out the description box for this episode to find out more, but that's bwhustle.com slash join. I'll read anything that's on the teleprompter, David. <laughs> Just if you were to write something random in a note, I'd, I'd, I'd probably read it. I would, I'd, I'd, I'd get halfway through the sentence before I'd realize something was wrong. Go apply to bwhustle.com slash join. Go apply to bwhustle.com forward slash join. Uh, because sometimes you need a little help getting your little podcast off the ground. Uh, and you know what? We're here to do it. We're here to help. Uh, all right. Let's get to the, the two questions we had for the 49ers at the beginning of the season. We thought, okay, if the defense is, the defense is likely going to regress, but if they can stay top 10, this team could be a playoff team. And Frankly, by and large, the defense did their job. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it's really kind of surprising. I mean, so like the the heading for the defensive section that we had in the preview is where will the defense land, right? Like that was kind of the lens that we were trying to look at, at the defense through because you knew that, that they were so good in 2019 and it was such a huge jump, right? They went from being one of the worst defenses in football to, to being one of the best overnight and we know that that just doesn't sustain year over year. And, and even good defenses, like defenses uh, in general is more volatile than offense. And so even defenses that do stay like good year to year, um, dominant defenses don't really stay dominant, right? They just kind of, they fall back to a different level of good. And that was kind of like, that was the hope for this 49ers defense and and uh, going into it. But we we really didn't know, right? Like where, where are they going to be average? Are they going to be top 10? Uh, and I think surprisingly, like if you would have told me that they would have ended up finishing as the fifth best defense by EPA per play overall on all plays um, before the season, I would have been thrilled. And I probably would have said that you're probably fucking wrong. Like, <laughs> I don't think that that level of play was going to right. Like, so so I think like where they landed and we'll get into a few of the things, obviously, the the challenges that they had, but they they certainly had a lot going against them to even come close to repeating that level of play that they had in 2019. Uh, and, and so all things considered, I think they did a very, very impressive job on that side of the ball. Yeah, you know, when, when I was putting the show notes together, uh, I, I didn't think that this was going to turn into a love letter to Robert Sala. But as I was thinking, <laughs> but as I was thinking about all this stuff, I mean, it really, it really is. The, the thought that I had while I was watching the game and, and the Niners, and it was clear the Niners were going to lose, it just, it kind of put that, that final thing where it's just like, man, the defense played another game where they played well enough to win. And, and if this offense can put up like league average points, then this, this yep. may be a win. And, and and it could be a win that determines playoff seating, just like it was last year, and it was a big deal. And 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 this is this is a, a window the Niners had with the defensive players that they had and, and the defensive depth that they had at this point. And, and what, what sucks and what really sucked to think about in that moment was that they may have, they may have, this may be the closing of the defensive window just because of what's happening on that side of the field. 
and and the defense had some challenges that Robert Sala helped overcome because I mean the the team had the fourth highest PFF coverage grade, which is good. This is very very good, and he did it with Akula Witherspoon, <laughs> Emmanuel Mosley, K1 Williams coming in and out of the uh, coming in and out of the, the lineup. You had Jason Verrett. Thank God he was a functional corner, right? And, and and the coverage grade was good. Jimmy Ward played well, but then you had, you know, Tavares Moore getting some snaps and he had some issues this season. You had Marcel Harris at times. Jaquaski Tart was injured. I mean, it was basically patchwork, a, a patchwork coverage unit that still was ninth in EPA per play against the pass. And then you look at the, the pass rush grade though, and he was 29th in PFF pass rush grade overall. Like, Kerry Hyder getting eight and a half sacks was like the story of the defensive line. And, and it just, what he was able to do with the, the pieces that he had, the, just the, the cast-off players, the impromptu signings, the players that only played for a week or two, he did it with scheme, he did it with game planning, and, and he did it with a couple of vets and a couple of key spots that it just, you know, I don't know that, it, well, he may leave, you know, and, and I don't know that you can put that lightning back in a bottle again, but man, it, it, this would have been a really good two-year run for any defense. I, so I, I think when you look at that discrepancy, right, the uh, between the fourth highest coverage grade and the 29th highest pass rush grade, right? I, I, I think that is is something that when you looked at the 49ers defense prior to the season would have been very shocking for that to come out that way, right? Because this was, as we talked about in the preview, like a, a defense that was very much built on that front seven. That is where they are putting all of their resources, right? We continue to see the first round picks on the defensive line, like all of the the money that they are putting into this defense and the, the, the premium picks are coming in that front seven. And that is is kind of what they were banking on. And so then when you deal with all of the injuries that they had up there and you're down to basically... Fred Warner and, you know, just whoever is healthy and whatever bodies that they can scrape together to like throw up there on the front seven. Um, you, you expect that to come down, but I, I think you, you see what they did from the coverage standpoint to kind of offset that right with, uh, again, they also dealing with their own set of injuries. And I think just overall a group though, that wasn't, um, as talented to begin with, right? Like the, I think going into the season, you certainly wouldn't have expected, um, a, a group like the 49ers secondary to deal with injuries and still be one of the top five coverage units in the league, right? So I think that is very impressive, the way that they were able to um, basically switch what their strength was uh, in, in a lot of ways, right? I think Sala gets a lot of credit for that. But the, their, the pass rush grade too, I think also highlights the fact um, of what Sala did schematically to generate a pass rush because they weren't... So what the grade is looking at specifically is how often did did 49ers defenders like win their one-on-one -on -one matchups essentially or do a positive individual thing to generate pressure right however when scheme is involved when you're when you're getting you know stunts and blitzes and you're getting guys free, as free rushers well from an individual perspective that's not as impressive right because you're getting help and so if you just end up as an unblocked guy, well, that's not really going to help your pass rush grade all that much. So that's why you see that deflated. But they they didn't struggle to generate pressure overall as a defense. And so, I, again, that comes back to Sala. And I think he did a lot of great things on third downs and in some of those key situations to, to find creative ways to generate that. I mean, we talked about the Kings Blitz, which was adjustment that we saw early on this year that they did throughout the year. We just talked about sending Fred Warner on blitzes where he's yep. the free player in cover one. Uh, you talk about a lot of stunts. Yeah, I, I think that there is uh, there are ways to generate pressure, and the Niners and Solid did that over the course of the year. And again, you look at Kerry Hyder, right? Kerry Hyder is the story, and, and I think that yes, while Kerry Hyder is, uh, it's neat that he has a career high in terms of sacks. I think the real story is that Sala put this guy in a position to get a career high because of what he was able to do with the hodgepodge pieces on defense. Um, and it is going to suck to lose Salah, oh, oh, I think, if he does get a head coaching job. I think everyone kind of presumes he will, and we're operating under the assumption that he will. Yep. Um, if he doesn't, I think that's great. If he does, though, it, it will be, I think, a, a big loss for the team because of what he's been able to do. And it's still, it, do, it does suck to really think about now that the season's over, had the Niners remained healthy at the quarterback spot, that it would have been, I mean, they are a playoff team, I think. I, I don't know that the original 
analysis that we had was wrong. Um, you know, and we'll get to the offense here in a little bit and, and potential areas where they regressed. But, you know, the, the defense did its job. Robert Sala did his job with imperfect clay, with a bunch of pieces that, you know, you've got defensive linemen. I think Alex Barrett was like number 64. And you're looking at like, what's that offensive lineman doing on the defensive line? And, like, <laughs> um, and, and, and yeah, it, it just it, it was wild. And it was wild um, to see the you know what what really became an amorphous defense for for Sala where you have different you know like two high shells single high shells blitz heavy not blitz heavy um he really did match his game plan to the team he was facing um and it paid off yeah it it ultimately like didn't look the way that we would have expected going into the season because of all of the you know circumstances that we talked about with injuries and guys coming in and out and and all of those things that they had to deal with um but they they very much found a way to get it done. And I think still, like, especially considering all of the the kind of extenuating circumstances they had to deal with there, very much outperformed expectations and, and held up there into the bargain. Now, we asked listeners, and specifically our Patreon subscribers, uh, who would be the stabilizing force uh, for 2020? Basically, what defender would need to perform well for the Niners to get back to the Super Bowl? Um, and and you, you picked two people. Uh, one was Emmanuel Mosley and the other was D Ford. So if, if you're looking back at like players that needed to, to perform well for the Niners to basically have a good defense, cause that's really where I think the, the fan vote came from. It's like, okay, the Niners defense needs to be good. And for the Niners defense to be good for the Niners to get back, Emmanuel Mosley has to have a good spot or a good season. And D Ford also has to have a good season. Um, well, Emmanuel Mosley was getting bumped on the starting list for uh, Akula Witherspoon. Uh, although I think that you can give the listeners a pass though, because you can sub Mosley for Verrett. Yeah. And I, that I kind think of really what they were saying with Mosley, right. Is cornerback opposite of Sherman right. is really what you're thinking preseason. Yeah. Which is not we'll, we'll give you partial credit. We'll give you, we'll give 50% yeah. for that one. Uh, and then D Ford, it just complete, complete <laughs> non-factor on the defensive line. Uh, and you know what? If you were a student arguing for a grade, you could say, look, we said that this needed to happen for the Niners to get back to the Super Bowl. That didn't happen. The Niners yeah. aren't getting back to the Super Bowl. There you go. So so you you fucked that test question. It's a trick question. It's a trick question. Um, mm. Let's get to the offense, though, because the offense definitely regressed. And, and one of the first areas, one of the much maligned areas this season, before we even get to what happened at quarterback, is the offensive line. The offense, I think Mike McGlinchey got a lot of crap this season. Um, people were like, you know, you have to fix. That was the thing coming into this year. You have to fix the protection. You have to fix guard and maybe center. And, and I don't know that those positions are any different than they were coming into 2019. Yeah. And like, yeah, I, I, I think that's a, that's a good spot, right? It's like, I don't really feel any differently about them now than I did entering the season. And I still don't know that it's like, a huge problem spot either. Like obviously it wasn't ideal at all times this season. And I think very few offensive line situations are, and and that's just kind of something that you have to deal with. But I think, you know, as we talked about at different points, like the quarterback has a huge role when you're looking at pass protection specifically and, and kind of how well, um, that element goes like all pressure is not on the offensive line and is not their fault. Um, and, and, and so I think that certainly plays a role into it, but yeah, I, I think overall, like you, you would certainly, uh, like to be better at center and guard, uh, if that was, you know, center and right guard specifically and, and dealing with, uh, the number of players that they had to go through at those two spots is always going to be difficult because even at minimum from an offensive line perspective, the thing that you really want is continuity, right? You're trying to get competency across all five positions and one of the best ways to do that is to be able to start the same five guys at that position as often as possible, right? They get used to working with each other, uh, with each other. So much of offensive line play is, is having those guys communicate well and be on the same page. And you, you look at things like picking up stunts, right? A lot of that's like physical cues that you're giving, right? Is, is the, the guard, as he's trying to pass him off, is he, you know, really running that guy into the tackle and giving that tackle a nice shoulder bump to let him know like, Hey, I got fucking somebody coming your way here. Like there's things like that, that just come with playing together, um, that you don't get when you're like starting somebody new at center and right guard every single week. 
you know, you mentioned the the effect of quarterback on pressure. And and I think Mike McGlinchey got a lot of flack this season. Mike McGlinchey is not an appreciably different player this season than he was that last season or the season before. He had 1,091 snaps this season. He had 1,055 his rookie year. His rookie year, he gave up 39 pressures. This year, he gave up 37. He played fewer snaps and gave up fewer pressures last year, but also it was a little better pass-blocking season last year. This year, though, Mike McGlinchey was one of the two best pass-blocking tackles in football. Like he was phenomenal at doing that thing that he was gonna do very well run coming blocking. out of college. Yeah, run blocking. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, the so as as a run blocker, he is continuing to progress as a pass blocker. He had maybe a down year that could be up on the upswing, but he's never been a super amazing pass blocker. If you thought Mike McGlinchey was good enough last season, then he's good enough this season, and he's probably gonna be good enough next season too. He's yep. not like a fundamentally different player. Yeah. Um, I do think though you get into the effect of the quarterback on how this offense performed, independent of looking at whether or not they can actually throw the football forward. <laughs> if you look at just their pressure stats, you're talking about three different quarterbacks in the same exact offense with some amalgam of the same offensive line. Nick Mullins, uh, this is basically minimum 100 dropbacks if you're looking at the quarter, when I'm talking about their ranks for the quarterbacks on the whole. Nick Mullins' pressure rate, 37.6%. That's seventh highest in the NFL. C.J. Beathard, 36% pressure rate, 13th highest in the NFL. And this is among quarterbacks with a minimum 100 dropbacks. Jimmy Garoppolo, 24.5% pressure rate, which is 39th in the NFL. So quarterback with the same offensive structure, with the same amount, like the, some combination of the same players, has you know a 15% lower pressure rate just because of the type of quarterback that he is. Yep. He gets the ball out a little bit faster. And and it's just that it, you're not going to... And that is the quarterback. That is what the quarterback does. The quarterback is helping the offensive line. So it may look like the offensive line is regressing by and large and that they're terrible. But this is where the quality of the quarterback really comes into play. And just this season alone, you can see the disparity with which the quarterback alone changes the rate at which the quarterback is pressured. Yeah, and, and and this is something that like has been true for a long time, right? Like uh Peyton Manning is obviously like an all-time great at it like preventing pressure, but that was his team no matter who was um suiting up at offensive line, right? Like he always was one of the least pressured quarterbacks in the NFL. Always took um, you know, uh, among the fewest sacks in the NFL among quarterbacks. And, and that's because of his ability to always be where, you know, he was supposed to be within the pocket and, and doing what he needs to do to, to make them look good, right? Because they're blind. The, you know, the offensive line can't see where the quarterback is at. They are blocking, expecting him to be in a specific spot. And if this, the quarterback is no longer in that spot, it changes things. The defense, the defense can see that, right? When the quarterback moves, the defense can see it and adjust accordingly, and that puts the offensive line in a bad position. And, and, and so there are a lot of plays like that when the quarterback moves off his spot and he's not where he's supposed to be, and the defense can react and get to him. Uh, and, and the offensive lineman might look stupid, but he has no idea that the quarterback moved and is in that spot that he's not supposed to be in, right? So these are things that you definitely have to consider. And I think, yeah, we've seen that with the 49ers trio of quarterbacks specifically, but this is something that that is really a league-wide thing. Certain quarterbacks, because of the way that they can navigate the pocket and deal with pressure and be where they're supposed to be, um, will have lower pressure rates, and that's going to always make your offensive line look a little bit better. We talked a couple of weeks ago about how Nick Mullins basically walked himself into a few pressures. So I took a look to see how many of the the quarterbacks' pressures this season, what percent of pressures were basically charged to the quarterback. And of Nick Mullins' pressures this season, 3% were charged to Nick Mullins. C.J. Beathard, 5.7% of his pressures were charged to C.J. Beathard. Uh, and in a smaller sample, yes, but still, that's a notable improvement. Jimmy Gar uh, improvement. It's notably higher, not an improvement. <laughs> Jimmy Garoppolo, 1.2% this season. And if you look last season as well, just, just to get a bigger sample size, it's nearly identical. 1.2%. Like that is just the style of quarterback that Jimmy Garoppolo is. So it is, if you're, if you're super worried about the offensive line and their performance, like I think re-signing Trent Williams is a big deal. I mean, having an elite tackle is kind of a big deal. But as long as he comes back, 
this offensive line, and especially if you get healthier at center um, or just get a center that can play all 16 games, then that's probably going to be good enough to make this offensive line look like it's going to perform better, even though nothing's going to be that much terribly different. Yep. Yeah. I, I, I think keeping yeah I, Trent Williams aside, like that is is definitely something um, that they need to figure out a way to to do and they need to retain him. And um, if you're suddenly looking for a new left tackle, that's going to significantly change this conversation and, and the outlook for the offensive line next year. But uh, with, with that aside, if we assume that for, for a second here that they find a way to keep him in a 49ers uniform in 2021, yeah, I think the, the quarterback and who is playing that position is going to have the biggest impact on the way we view uh, the offensive line next season. So we've been dancing around the topic all show, David. Quarterback. Jimmy Garoppolo had 159 total dropbacks in 2020. Did you learn anything more about Jimmy Garoppolo this season in his limited play? Or is this just like 2018 was a punt and we have to wait and take a look in, in 2021 to see what we do, whether we keep them, whether we not. Um, because the, the new news and I, you know, news, I guess I should say is Mayoko's basically saying that when the Niners make a decision on Garoppolo, at some point in April, after the draft, after free agency, um, they basically they're going to look out. Can we sign someone in free agency that's going to make us better? Can we draft a quarterback that's going to make us better? If Jimmy Garoppolo at this point is the starter, they're going to convert his salary to to bonus, amortize that amount over the course of two years, and get some cap savings for a reduced cap year, which is effectively going to have the function of locking the team into Garoppolo for the final two years of his deal. Because the benefit of Garoppolo's deal right now is that none of his money is guaranteed. So if he's traded, then it's zero cap hit. If he's cut, it's zero cap hit. Once you convert that money to bonus, now you run into the Quan Alexander, D Ford, Weston Richburg problem, which is if you do need to pull the ripcord, now you actually are on the hook for that bonus money and it accelerates. So did we learn anything that's going to help make that decision any clearer for the 49ers in his 159 snaps this season? I mean, uh, so I think two things there. Like one, I, I think that's a smart approach generally. Um, and we can talk about that after the, after the fact, if we want to go down that route, or if we want to save that for another, uh, an, another time. But I think as far as whether we learn the anything, of like looking to get better. And if you can't, then basically yeah, the saying, whole, all right, he's my guy. Yeah. Conversion. Yeah. Cause I think this off season does seem to be maybe your like, I, 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 we've talked about the difficulties that they may have and just having the resources to pull together to, to find a way to get a quarterback. But if you're going to do something like that, this appears to be a pretty good off season to do it, right? It's a good quarterback draft. Um, I, I think there are going to be some options available to them this off season, uh, for them to make a move if they want to do that. And so I think this is the off season if they're going to make a change um, that, that makes sense to do so. And if you can't figure out a way to do it, then yeah, just roll with it. You're probably not going to, to find an upgrade, um, you know, over him next off season. And so you just kind of go that route. I think that that's fine. You need some cap space there. Um, but, but as far as what we learned in, in 2020, I wouldn't say that I necessarily learned anything new necessarily. Um, I think I became more confident in what I already was starting to think about Jimmy Garoppolo, which is that, uh, so I, I think because of what he did very early on and especially over those first five games after the trade and um, even a little bit after that, and it points during the 2019 season, um, I think there was still like hope out there that he might um, kind of put it together and become a, a more, you know, something resembling an elite quarterback in the league, right? Really more of a top tier type of guy as opposed to somebody who is just one of the many quarterbacks in the NFL right now that is a guy that's solid. And, and if you surround him with all of the right parts, he can look very good and you can be successful as an offense with him as your quarterback. But he's not really one of the guys that's carrying the offense, right? You can't put everything on his shoulders and just know that you're going to have a productive offense because simply he's lining up at quarterback, right? And I think there was still some hope that he could become that guy. And I think what we saw from him this year was just 
more of the the he is a guy that needs the supporting cast like he needs to be uplifted by those around him he is not going to uplift everybody else yeah the more snaps that we get with him not you know kind of not breaking out of that i am a a third tier quarterback and by that i mean someone who is some flavor of average who needs things around him to be good and could have a really good game here and there but is not going to be con- like that's not going to be their consistent level of play. Um, the more that that evaluation gets ossified for me, yep. and and what one of the numbers that I think that's important because we're still dealing with a very small sample, right? But the the style of quarterback that Jimmy Garoppolo is is something I've been thinking about. Like, what flavor of average is he? Um, is he the the super conservative flavor of average? Is he the super high variance flavor of average? Where you've got like you know some like like I think the thirty thirty season from Jameis Winston is a perfect example of high variance. You yeah. know it's like thirty touchdowns, but also thirty picks. <laughs> um, is he is he the scrambler? Is he you know what what kind of player is he? Um, and, and for me, I think the the two point five percent big time throw rate in twenty twenty is not high. It's incredibly low. But in 2019, that rate was 2.4%. Like, for me, I don't think that we should expect Jimmy Garoppolo to ever be a down-the-field, deep-throw kind of guy. That, to me, is not who he is. He is going to be a short-intermediate type of thrower who sometimes doesn't even do that well and get, get really frustrating in terms of him missing players in, on, on the intermediate kind of level. And... He's prone to boneheaded picks. He's prone to just kind of whatever happens in the pocket where he just speeds through something or is too slow with something or gets, you know, anxious in the pocket and throws some interceptions. So I don't think his his interception to touchdown ratio is ever going to be super, you know, like 25, 30 touchdowns and five interceptions. I think it's going to be a lot closer. Um, and and that's that's not necessarily bad. I think you can win with that. But it's not going to be you know the the kind of player that i think everyone thought he would be or was hoping he would be um after you know 2017 and and 2019 yeah i mean so i i think for me the big time throw stuff and, and just the general willingness to try to push the ball downfield um is is certainly frustrating at times and i think i would definitely like if i could pick a quarterback style like i i would certainly prefer a player who was willing to try to make some of those throws a little bit more frequently, but I can live in this offense um, and and with what Kyle Shanahan wants to do specifically like in the intermediate level and, and some of those things I can live with him not really doing much better on that front specifically. The thing that is, is become very concerning for me is that he just no longer is consistently accurate with the football. That was the, the main calling card during that first glimpse that we got those first five games, right? The accuracy was just off the charts. Like it was so high compared to everybody else in the league. And he was just consistently making those short and intermediate throws um, with, with excellent ball location. And that has just fallen off a cliff this season. Um, he is one of the the lowest uh, quarterbacks in terms of accuracy on ball, like when we look at specifically at ball location on all throws. But the the even more concerning part than that is when you have receivers that are open, so receivers with at least a step of separation. The only full-time quarterbacks that had a lower accuracy rate than Jimmy Garoppolo this season, Dwayne Haskins, Mitchell Trubisky, and Carson Wentz. Like, that's it. He just kind of company you want struggled. when you're playing quarterback. <laughs> like, yeah. It, and it's just, it's brutal. And like the it's, guy that's it's hard down to there put is CJ Beathard. Like that's, that's the other company hard. that he's keeping, right? Like it's hard to put too much on him this season because of his ankle. I, I do think that I, I'll give him a little bit of a pass, but th- this is, and we did, we did identify that as something we would watch this season because he was already trending that way last season. Um, whereas you compare last season to, you know, the, the small sample that we had where it was amazing. It, it, it wasn't super great. Um, it, it was just a lot of outcome stuff where it was like catchable, but inaccurate, but because it was catchable, the receivers helped him out. It, it's tough for me because of his ankle issue. I mean, he, he got injured what in the like first half of the second game. Um, and so as soon as that happens now, all of a sudden you're talking about just his inability to plant. I mean, you, we saw his game against Miami. He could not get anything on the ball 
Yeah, but so I, I think the the issue is, though, is right. This is, yeah. So even if you want to say that him being among the league's worst quarterbacks in that regard has a little bit to do with the, the injury in the ankle, absolutely going to concede that every time. When you include, so if you just look at what he's done since last season, everything since the start of 2019 through now, um, you've got 40 quarterbacks with at least 200 attempts during that span. Again, this is throwing to receivers that are open, at least a step of separation. Um, Jimmy Garoppolo was 27th in accuracy using actual ball location. Uh, um, Out of, among, I'm sure, 150. No, 40. Okay. Yeah, again, those 40. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, yeah, so like, um, it it just hasn't been there. And and it, as you continue to like look at other important splits, right? Like, what is he doing on throws? Because the Fortnite have a lot of throws that are, um, you know, behind the line of scrimmage. They have a lot in the screen game. So everything, uh, you know, all those jet pop passes to Debo Samuel, like he's open technically, right? But he's not obviously Jimmy Garoppolo is not doing a hell of a lot to get that throw there. That's baked in there as well. So like. Yeah, I, I'm sure that if you like started looking at stuff that was just beyond the line of scrimmage, it's it's not going to get any better. And like that's the thing that is problematic, right? It, is you can live with some of the other stuff. You can live with a, a, a little bit more conservatism and and not willing, uh, being willing to push the ball downfield with this offense because you know that Shanahan's going to create opportunities in the intermediate levels, and you know that you have when healthy the skill position players to take some of those. Um, open underneath throws and turn them into big plays you have to put the ball on target on those you have to be able to put the ball on target on the gimme throws and he just hasn't been able to do it consistently now for a season and change so what should the Niners do we you know this is going to be an episode where we looked back at whether or not we were by and large right and how we were looking at the team And, and I think by and large we were the injury really put a huge wrench into stuff but I think the the defense definitely did what we were hoping they would do. And it's impossible to give the, the offense a full and complete grade because they didn't have a quarterback that was worthy of starting games in the NFL, actually start a lot of games in the NFL. And that's always going to render your your offense a little incomplete. Um, I think if you were to if you were to take this the same question back in 2018, you know, it's like, okay, we had an incomplete year in 2018, moving into 2019. I think the 2021 offense for the 49ers now has established offensive playmakers at all three positions on the field. I think Raheem Mostert and Jeff Wilson are very good running backs for this system. I think Ayuk and Debo are fantastic wide receivers and George Kittle is going to continue to do George Kittle things. Everyone else at this point, whether you have a hard-on for Jalen Hurd or whether you love Richie James or whether you think Kendrick Bourne is the answer because he can spin footballs and dance, that's all at this point tertiary because the core of that offensive skill group is good. They have good players. And I think the offensive line is good enough to win. The piece that's left really is what do you do with quarterback? That's the question mark at this point. And that's probably what we're going to spend a lot of time doing in the offseason. We're going to talk about uh, young quarterbacks, quarterbacks that are in the draft. We're going to take a look at uh, players the Niners could get. Uh, we're going to break all those players down for pods coming up this week. Uh, we're going to take a look at free agent quarterbacks as well. Um, we'll probably even take a look at Matt Stafford. You know why? Because I fucking want to. Because uh, he's, uh, I, I got all excited about Matt Stafford, and now I want to see, you know, let's do it. I don't get to watch the Detroit Lions a whole hell of a lot, but let's take a look. Uh, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about quarterbacks so that we can really have an intelligent conversation about what the Niners should do. Yep. And we're going to talk about other free agent positions as well, positions of need, and then it's going to be the draft all over again. So we're we're still going to have a ton of content here, and we're going to have video versions of these on the Patreon to, to actually take a look at some of the plays that we're talking about. And all of that is going to start the week after next. We are taking one week off uh, because I got to see my daughter for all of half an hour today, and I was very sad. Uh, and so <laughs> we're going to take a week off and not do anything for a week. Uh, I'm going to enjoy making fun of Browns fans uh, because the C on their hats basically is for COVID. Uh, <laughs> it's just, it sucks. I feel, I really do feel bad for the Browns. It, fans. It's brutal. It but is. It's terrible. But um, I'm going to be a sports fan for a week and enjoy it uh, and not worry about this team. And then next, next week we'll come back and it's going to be off season mode. We're probably going to talk about new coaches uh, all manner of scheme stuff, who the options are, 
Um, it's gonna be uh, it's gonna be back to the old off season. Um, but it's gonna be the week after next. Yeah, I I mean uh, I wish it were a little bit longer. I wish the off season for us was a little bit longer. But hey, we're gonna take a week, and the off season is always I think in a lot of ways uh, a bit more fun for us. Like don't get me wrong, I, I always love getting back into the season and talking about actual games and and things like that. But during free agency time, during draft time is is always fun when you get a kind of look at some new players and like branch out a little bit and get uh, get outside of just the 49ers bubble and, and start considering some of these other players uh, it is always a good time. Yeah, it's always a fun time. So stick with us for the ride. Um, it's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to take a look at some quarterbacks, defensive coaches, players of need, um, all that good stuff uh, the week after next. So thanks again for all of you who have tuned in all this season through the transition from Niners Nation of Blue Wire um, through the Patreon if you're a subscriber there and even if you're not the interactions on Twitter the interactions everywhere um, it's it's been awesome um, just this year in general it, it's been a shitty year in a lot of respects um, but it's been good to be able to kind of get in this room and just talk about the stuff that we like uh, even when things aren't going well <laughs> make fun of them laugh about them uh, and, and talk about some football so thank you to everyone who's tuned in over the course of the year and as always go Niners go Niners